0: All right, uh, for the next couple of weeks, because there's no way I don't think I'm going to get through it unless I uh, speak uh, in double time, uh, we're going we're to walk through kind of uh, talking what the Bible has to say about the role of women uh, in ministry. That's going to necessitate that we talk about the role of women in the home and ministry because these two things go together, uh, so we'll kind of do these back to back. But um, uh, what we'll do is I'm going to march through these, and if I don't get to a Q&A today I will get to it uh next week and uh and and what we can always do is write your questions down. Email them to me if you want to email them to me between now and next week, and I'll try to answer those and maybe bring them uh, to the rest of the group. Then then we'll do that as well. Okay. Now some some kind of rules relative to your questions. Um, uh, w- w- first, we're talking about what the Bible has to say. I am not making this stuff up. Okay. This is what the Bible says about this. So so if there is an argument or if there's something that you want to say about it, um, I'm not I'm not Stretching scripture, um, in fact, I think the burden of proof you'll find is going to rest on people that would disagree with me, uh, not on me, and and nor do I have an axe to grind with women. Uh, I have four of them living in my home uh, and love them dearly and, uh, and would, would want to see my daughters uh, do nothing more than than excel in this world and in the church. And so this is not an issue of of a vendetta or something against women. But what I want to say is this, for our q and A, I'm going to only be answering questions about the, what the Bible has to say. So if you have a, a passage that you want to bring up and say, hey, well, what about this or what about that? Because I see that it says this here, then let's talk about that. But not, you know, my, my great uncle's sister who was a, a pastor had this to say um, or that's not my experience, okay, because listen... Um, your experience uh, is, is great, and I don't want to negate that, but your experience ultimately, if it, does, if, it, if it isn't backed up by the Bible, is irrelevant. I used to hear this argument all the time in seminary. Okay? People would come to me because they knew that I had a Pentecostal background, and they would say to me, um, well, Billy Graham doesn't speak in tongues. And I would say, what does that have to do with anything if you want to prove your argument? If if I don't care if Billy Graham or, or Mother Teresa, pick your spiritual giant that they never spoke in tongues, that isn't the issue. The issue is what does the Bible say about that? And if the Bible agrees or disagrees, then that's where we want to stake our claim. So we want to go with what the Bible has to say. And if, if, if you want to bring up a scripture, then let's bring it up. Let's talk about that. Second, we want to remember that the first rule of biblical interpretation, and this is very important because a lot of us can bring up passages or parts of passages or rip a context, a passage out of context. The first rule of interpretation is that scripture must interpret scripture. Okay, so we don't just take a verse and go, but we take the verse, we add it to this verse, we add it, and that's how we come up with doctrine. Doctrine is not just one verse that we put a hook on. Doctrine is when we take the whole inspiration, uh, the the whole revelation of Scripture, we put it together and say, okay, now, how do we make sense of all these pieces put together? That's what we do. So, So it's easy. You can come up, you can make the Bible say anything that you want it to. If you want to just take pieces and parts. But, but what we're going to be after is what is, the, what is the whole of it. I have to say about this issue of the role of women uh, in ministry. So we'll do our Q&A at the end if we have time. And, uh, and then email me uh, uh, questions. Uh, if we don't get to them uh, today or in the next, uh, next week. Then, then I'm happy uh, to, to, to answer your questions. I, uh, so, so let's get started. Okay, background. I've tried to give you. A sheet that will help you just kind of follow along with me. And, uh, and so I want to just start and, and frame the issue here. There are many reasons why uh, women and men uh, cringe and even hate uh, the idea of male headship, whether it be in the home or whether it be in the church. Um, I've made it very clear in my interview process that where I land is that the ultimate spiritual authority is to be male and we're going to, we're going to talk about that. We're going to get there. But the first reason that I believe that women, men, uh, mostly women, and, and I think that's just true. That's not, that's not a sexist comment, uh, are, are going to have a problem with this is because men have failed to be the nail pierced servants of their wives, um, and, and the reason so many men or women cringe at the thought of male leadership is that they have experienced abuse at the hands of men. They have experienced men that do awful things in the name of God, in the name of the Bible. And they're leaders in the church that maybe shouldn't be leaders in the church. And so you've maybe sat under, or maybe you've experienced, or maybe you've been married to. I don't know all the stories in this room. But, but that's the first reason that this is such a hot topic. We live in a world that has, let's all admit it, historically abused women. Men have abused women. And so we we cringe at the thought of, uh, of male headship. The second reason this is such a hot topic is that maybe more than any other topic, any other stance that we will take as a church, this is swimming upstream. This is going against what the culture has to say. Uh, the culture wants to say that there is absolutely no differentiation between men and women. There shouldn't be. That's barbaric. That's caveman-like. I can't even believe you talk like that. And, and this is going against the grain of culture. And, uh, and seems very, very odd to a lost world. Who's out there saying, we're trying to remove the glass ceiling, and you're trying to put it back on in the church. That's the way they're going to look at it, right? So, so uh, and I hope to show you, that's not at all. Uh, what we're trying to do or that I believe what the Bible is teaching us to do, okay? The third reason it's such a hot topic is found in Genesis. So turn with me if you're in your Bibles... And um, I've given these, these references so they would fit in your Bibles, but, but let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, okay? Genesis chapter 3, and let me give you some context. Genesis chapter 3 is uh, God talking to Adam and Eve, and what's happened, remember, he's created them perfect, everything's been great, he brought the man to the woman, uh, then the serpent came in, the serpent tempted Eve, she, uh, she took the, the apple, she took the fruit, she ate of it, while Adam, we'll talk about this in a minute, was standing right. Right there, watching it all happen and 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 she ate, okay, so she sinned and and sin was brought into the world, and we 're going to see who God says was the sinner, okay, but what I want you to see is that the third reason, the context of this curse you've got to keep that in mind this what i 'm about to read you is a curse, okay, this is a curse now, listen to this genesis three sixteen okay, God is talking. He now turns to the woman after talking to the serpent, and he says this, uh, To the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, any woman who has had a, a, a baby... Uh, knows that it is pleasure mixed with pain, great pain. And I know it's painful because Michelle had four C-sections and it must be so painful that she's willing to let them stick a seven inch rod up her back in order to, to kill the pain. You know, for me, I'd be like a basket case. But, but, but she's like, you know, this is necessary. Even women who have natural childbirths want relief from the pain. So we know that something, even in the moment of birth, there is evidence of brokenness in the human race. From the moment you and I are born, the first sound out of most of our mouths was a cry. The, 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 there is something broken that we see right there in the moment of creation. So, so th- that's the first part of the curse. Look at the second part. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, now, what does it mean that Eve would desire her husband? There's been a lot of stuff written about this. And uh, let me just say this. It is a word that it has this idea of this insatiable desire to consume. Okay? Now, um, some people have said, and you've probably heard this, that that desire is sexual. Okay? That, That part of the curse... Uh, is that, uh, uh, that God gives to Eve is an uncontrollable sexual desire for her husband, Adam. To which I say, if that's part of the curse, then curse my wife. Okay? Because all of us want to have that, right? I mean, that is not a curse. And I love that half of this room is laughing at other people. That is completely unacceptable. Okay? Now, now listen. But let me show you. Let me show you What I mean, that can't be what's happening here, okay? Uh, 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 First of all, uh, just look over, I don't know where it is on your page, it's right on the same page with mine, but in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, the same word is used, okay? God is now talking to Cain, okay? Okay? And, and he walks up to Cain, and Cain is angry, and he says, why are you angry? And then look at verse 7 of chapter 4. If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Very same word in the Hebrew. But you must rule over it. Sound familiar? Desire and rule. Okay. There's going to be this insatiable desire to consume, and the response is going to be ruling. It's going to be something that you have to that 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 uh, that that has to be overthrown. Okay. So, so God is saying that the curse of the fall on women is that they will have a desire or a, 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 an insatiable desire to consume and overthrow the role of men, uh, their husbands. Now, if you don't agree with that, you'd say, that is totally not true. And the reason I know that's not true, Chris, is because that's not true in me. I don't desire that in my life. And I say, great, good for you and the redemption of Christ and the work of Christ in your soul. Okay, but... Um, if you're going to say that because that's not what you desire, uh, you're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with God. Okay? That's what scripture says. That is part of the fall. There is this desire for women and the history of the world and the history of America proves it. Okay, I mean, you don't have to go back uh, 500 years, uh, you can go back 50 years, and you can see the feminist movement and this desire to, to say, man, we are not, I mean, we have, we, have, we have been ruled by an iron fist by men, and there is no way we're tolerating this anymore. Okay, so we're, we're going to usurp that, we're going to overthrow that. So the desire of a woman is to overthrow and kick and hate the leadership of her husband. That's part of the curse. They don't want that leadership. And God has decreed eternal frustration because of that desire. Because He says that it will result in what? What's the result of a woman having that kind of desire? Look at the last part of verse 16. He will rule over you. Okay? So God God has has decreed this. He said, look... um, uh th- th- This is going to be part uh, 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 of what happens and and so so uh he comes along, and the man is going to now rule him rule her and and the idea of rule is ugly it's violent it's sinful. Hear me, what God is talking about here is curse. This desire to rule over your wife and this desire of the wife to usurp the authority of her husband are both sins. Okay? Uh, it's, and, 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 and where Christ has implanted in the human heart women, uh, where he has not, women have suffered horrific abuse at the hands of men who will look at that and say, this is what I'm supposed to do. Okay? And, and, and then you're going to hear me say very clearly, that is not what a man is supposed to do. So the the rule is not biblical submission, and you have to hear that, okay? The rule in Genesis 3.16 is not biblical submission, okay? Um, One is externally enforced, okay? I will force you to submit to my rule. The other one is internally motivated, and it's a gift, okay? The submission of the wife. So, so what happens in the fall is that a man's going to try to enforce the rule and she's going to refuse to submit. Okay, now, I find it interesting that every time in the New Testament that God wants to talk to husbands and wives, you just trace it through, He talks to the wives first. Why? Why do you think? I mean, what's going on that God would want to talk to wives first? Let me suggest this. Because a, a man will never be able to um, to lead a woman who refuses to submit, period. I mean, not, I don't care if it's George Patton. If Mrs. Patton doesn't want to submit, George ain't leading her. It's not going to happen. Okay, so he talks to wives and says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, we'll talk about this. Love your wives. And what does all that mean? So, And, and that's why the Proverbs will say things like what? A a, a contentious woman, who can stop her? Better to live in the corner of a housetop than with a contentious woman. Why? Because she's not going to be ruled. She's not going to be submissive. No way. And the Bible isn't saying that's a good thing, that's a bad thing. Okay, now, and and that, you know, the Proverbs being written at a time when when women had no rights to speak of, but God understands that if a woman doesn't want to submit, she doesn't have to. Okay? Now, now, now here's what happens when you hear sermons like this, and I want to warn you about this. Because uh, I know, and, 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 uh, and I'm going to show you very plainly in Scripture uh, what we're talking about. Some of the men in the room are going to go, you know, you go, Chris. Yeah, tell them. Give it to them like it is. And my response to you is, that's not Ephesians 5. That's not loving your wife the way that Christ loved the, the, the church. Okay? Some of the women, and I know this will happen. There will be some women in the church that says, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm not doing it. And you know what? God's not going to stop you. And neither will your husband. Not with that kind of attitude you won't. And, uh, uh, but don't be surprised when your way doesn't work itself out in a mutually satisfying marriage, uh, in the kind of marriage that God intended, when there's frustration, when there's animosity, when there's angst. And don't be surprised when your way, according to the Bible, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You want to do that and you want to say, I don't care what the Bible says, you will suffer the consequences, okay? So that's where we are. First thing, men have done a lousy job of being nail pierced servants. Second thing, the culture screams at us and calls us fools for believing like cavemen, okay, right? And third, Genesis 3 tells us that both men and women are broken and bent right from the get-go, right? Okay. Now, that's the background of why we find ourselves uh, where we are today. And and while I'm going to express what the Bible clearly teaches on the issue, I'm not naive enough to stand up here and say, uh, I know that nobody out there disagrees with me. Obviously, there's people that disagree with me. Uh, There are evangelical leaders uh, that will disagree with me. But you know what? That doesn't bother me. Because there's people that disagree with me about the charismatic gifts. There's people that disagree with me about my, my stance on salvation. There's people that disagree with me about all kinds of things. That isn't the issue for me. Uh, uh, I will say this position I take on this issue is the position of the church fathers. It's the position of the historic Christian church. It's the position most of conservative Christian scholars, not all, but most, take. Um, and moreover, it's a position of some very prominent women that you know. Beverly LaHaye, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, Beth Moore, uh, Anne Graham Lotz, to name a few. People that would say, I believe in the headship of man within the church and the headship of man within the home. Okay. But finally, uh, I am deeply convinced that the position I hold is not only biblically and theologically sound but, uh, and accurate, but is desperately needed in our culture. Um, and it's going to be the position, you knew this before I came, that I will take a stand on this as your pastor. This is where I stand. So, um, now, since the 19th century, uh, some labels have crept up that to de- kind of define the sides of the debate, okay? So, I, I'm, I'm telling you, this is what I believe the Bible says. There are going to be others that say, no, we think this is what the Bible says, and we'll, we'll look at those, okay? Those two labels are this. There's one camp that are called uh, egalitarian, okay? There's another camp, and we'll call them complementarian. That's, that's the names that have been given, okay? Egalitarian. What do they believe? Now, you may think that these people just go hammer and tongs over the whole issue of women and men, and there's no agreement. That's not true. There's a lot of agreement, okay? First of all, both sides agree that men and women are created equally in the image of God and that neither is more or less the image of God than the other. Okay? Both sides agree on that. Both are equally the image of God. Number two, both sides agree that men and women are equal in personal dignity. That neither is more or less worthy or or, or of more or less value as human beings. Number three, both sides agree that men and women should treat each other with kindness, compassion, love, that any and all forms of abuse, hear this, any and all forms of abuse, disrespect, dishonor, must be denounced as sin and are wrong. Okay? You're never going to hear me say that a woman should stay in the home, a woman should submit to a husband that beats her. Never. Both both sides believe that women should be actively involved in ministry. Okay? Complementarians agree with egalitarians and celebrate the fact that women, for example, served as co-workers with Paul uh, and held the office of deacon. Okay, Now, where the sides disagree is this. Okay, Very simple. Whether women can serve as the senior slash lead pastor, whatever they're called in that church, or as the ruling elder in the local church, what I will call senior governmental authority. Egalitarians believe that the Bible permits that. We'll talk about their arguments. Complementarians do not. So what am I? A complementarian. Okay? With some slight differences. Okay? Okay? Now, I need to tell you some are going to broaden this debate to, to say that uh, women um, should not be involved in any form of ministry. And uh, whether that be the leading of worship or personal evangelism or church planting or celebrating the sacraments, ordinances, and, and I say from the start you should know uh, that is absolutely not where I stand. Okay? That, is, that is not what I believe uh, the Bible uh, teaches. So if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of freedom because in my opinion the only restrictions placed on women in the church is what I call senior governmental authority. Okay? I have in mind this that the primary authority to expand the scriptures and enforce their doctrinal and ethical truths on the consciences of all God's people. That's part of what it means to be senior governmental authority. And number two, the authority to exercise final governmental oversight, final spiritual oversight, if you will, uh, for the body of Christ. So unlike uh, other complementarians, um, as long as the principle of male headship is honored within a church, um then i believe women can lead worship i believe women can preach in a service um as long as that doesn't become de facto the leadership of men because uh they they do it so routinely that in essence they are shepherding and leading the men in that way and i don't believe that we can do that but i i don't have a problem with a woman standing up and and preaching in a service beth moreover, ever wanted to come to our church i'd say stand up there and preach it beth um Uh, I've had friends tell me that they've seen Beth Moore go uh, to a church and sit on the front row and pray and get up and stand in front of that congregation and tell them without any apology, I want you to know that I am here gladly in submission to the male headship of this church, okay? So I say praise God for that and that's the way that the Bible will teach it, okay, so um, I think they can, they, can, they can lead small groups. I think they can assist in the celebration of both baptism and Lord's Supper. I think they can serve as, as deacons or deaconesses. We'll talk about why. I think they can chair church committees. Uh, I think they can lead an evangelist in evangelistic and church planning. I think they could and should be consulted by the local church elders uh, when decisions are being made and can provide a leadership in virtually every other capacity of the local church life. Women should be encouraged to pray. Women should be encouraged to prophesy in corporate church meetings and should be given every opportunity to develop their spiritual gifts, okay? So that's what we believe as complementarians. So that what we're saying is that, uh, in essence, let me, just, let me just boil it down this. If I were to say, what do complementarians believe? We believe that women are equal, that both are created in the image of God, they're equal in value, dignity in human persons, but there is a distinction in the roles that God has created for men and for women. There's a distinction. Complementarian, uh, th- what, what I will argue is that that uh, asserts a functional difference between men and women in the church and in the home. And, uh, and that's expressed in terms such as headship and submission in the Bible. And that does not jeopardize or minimize the essential equality of dignity, of person, of value of a woman. So women are not second-class citizens in the Bible They're just not, okay? Now, let's look at B, biblical examples of the kind of equality that I'm talking about that demonstrates that there is this equal equality in essence, okay? Genesis 1.26, and we're going to run through lots of verses, so I'm not going to flip to every one of them, and I put them there so that you can look them up. Genesis 1.26 and 27, you'll find that both share God's nature and both are commissioned to rule the earth. Okay? Both the man and the woman share God's nature. Both the man and the woman, prior to the fall, are commissioned to rule the earth. Now, uh, this verse doesn't support the egalitarian position of saying, See? I mean, they're both commissioned to rule because um, uh, God doesn't say how that's going to look. He just simply says, Here's the rule. Okay? Now, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Galatians 3.28 this is sometimes used. This is the, the, the very familiar verse. It says there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, uh, but we're all you know, one in Christ. And, and, and this is that. That God's redemption of those he will save makes no distinction... Between male and female, God isn't looking down. Look down and say, you know what? I got a quota in heaven. I got to fill up more males, or I got to get more females. He says, look, in terms of salvation, there just is no a quota that needs to happen. We're all equal on equal footing at the cross. But but again, you can't take Galatians 3:28 and make that the verse that trumps every other verse that's going to explicitly refer to male leadership. If you do that with scripture. You will gut Scripture everywhere. You'll make this verse say, this is what I want to say it, and you'll make that one say, well, I guess we have to throw that one out because this one earlier trumped it. No, we can't do that. We have to take them all, stick them on the board, and say, how do we make sense of them? Okay, and that's what we're doing. Okay, the context of Galatians 3 is not church leadership. The context is salvation. And, and the fact that we're joint heirs in Christ, okay? 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11 says that God distributes to people gifts without regard to their sex, okay? To each one is given a measure of the grace of God, okay? So it, all, all these gifts are handed out, and he's given the gift of tongues and prophecy and all these things. So, so God doesn't say, um, you know, I'll separate these out, those will be for women, I'll separate these out, these will be uh, for men. So when it comes to gifting, it's not gender that determines what gift uh, we have. In 1 Peter 3, 7, women are fellow heirs with Christ and men. So we are equal in essence, we're equal in value and dignity, but we also have different roles uh, to play in the home and in the church, All right. Now, let's look at C, the biblical evidence of male and female role differentiation or distinctions, okay? Are there places where we see this? Do we see that God makes a difference in the roles of men and women? Absolutely we do, okay? Genesis 2, Genesis 2, and and this is what I want to say in introduction, there are a lot of people that will say, well, Chris, okay, before the fall, there was no male headship. After the fall, you have submission and rule, or you have submission, you have all the things that are, you know, the, 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 the curse that God puts on, on Adam and Eve, so that what God meant to do was in redemption and in salvation was to erase any kind of distinction uh, between man and woman. The problem is that in Genesis 2, you are before the fall of man, okay? Now, I could take you through nine things, I'm going to give you four tonight. Nine things from Genesis 1 to 4, but to show you the pre, what happened before the fall, I want to show you that male headship and female head, uh, submission are, are shown prior, are demonstrated prior to the fall in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2. Okay, first of all. The order of creation indicates God's design of male priority in the male-female relationship. Now you can hear that, and you can say, "Wait a minute! Doesn't that mean that therefore, hey, God created the animals first, so apparently the animals must have priority over over uh, uh, mankind?" And that's nonsense. And the reason it's nonsense is number one: you're writing to a Jewish audience that understands that the firstborn is the one who gets the heir, who gets it's all of the things that the father has to provide for him. So if I am born into a family as the firstborn and my dad had a bunch of cattle, the cattle don't come before the person, right? So that would be nonsense to a Jew. But second of all, and, and, and more importantly, is that the apostle Paul makes clear, right in your margin, 1 Corinthians 11, 7-11, 1 Timothy 2, 12-14, that he makes clear that the order of creation is it shows the priority of, of the male in the male-female relationship, okay? So for, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 11, 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 14, okay? So the differentiation between Adam and Eve is similar to the differentiation uh, that we see between you know, the, the firstborn and then we see it in Scripture as well, where Paul makes clear about, about that, okay? So second. God gives the instruction to Adam not to eat the fruit immediately before Eve's creation. Now, that is significant. Okay, and, and you, you look at there in in chapter 2, verses 15 to 23. Implied in this is Adam's responsibility to teach and protect his wife from violating the Lord's will. And you say, well, now, Chris, that's implied, but that's not there. All right, then let's see what happens that's implied. Look at what happens when the curse comes. You go to chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and you find the serpent tempting Eve. Adam sits back in, I think it's verse, um, what, 7? She, yeah, she took 6. She took the fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam is standing right there. Now, what happens? Now, Eve sins first, right? Eve grabs the apple, Eve eats it but when god shows up who does he call for adam okay god goes after adam god quizzes adam and in fact in romans 521 and in Ro- in 1st 1 corinthians 1522 paul makes it clear that adam is responsible for the mess that we're in not eve okay god says look Uh, No, there is this implication, and I would say a biblically supported implication, that God says he was standing right there and he did nothing about it. Sin entered the world through Adam and the world died. Not through Eve. So anybody who wants to say women jacked it up aren't reading their Bible. Because that's not what the Bible says. Adam jacked it up. Okay? Okay, third, Eve is called Adam's helper. Just quickly, this is a word, some of you say, well, that's used of God. But it is clear in chapter 2, verse 18, that when he says helper, he says, look in verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That, is a cor- that will correspond to him, that will come alongside him and help him. Okay? So that God means to talk about male headship. Fourth, Adam's naming of Eve. I'll show you I could show you uh, uh, five, six examples. You know uh, when God renamed uh, uh, Jacob and called him Israel, you know all the times that God renames people or somebody names another person in the Bible, it is a sign of authority in the Bible. So he names. The woman, he says, you shall be called woman. In fact, he does it twice because in chapter four, uh, he says again that uh, or I'm sorry, in chapter three, verse 20, he says, you shall be called Eve. OK, so prior to the fall and after the fall. OK, so that's evidence from Genesis chapter two of role distinction. OK. So, uh, number two, 1 Corinthians eleven two 2 through 16. Paul links a woman's submissive role in the church with God's creative design. Okay? Over and listen, check me on these. You go and read these and, and, and tell me that's not what he's doing. Over and over, wh- what does God do? This is one of the great things. God uses these word pictures for us and God uses our marriage and our home to describe the church. So what's the church uh, uh, called? It's called the Bride of Christ, right? When we all get to heaven, we're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, okay? So uh, this is God's favorite illustration of explaining the church. Now, if there is male headship in the home, and by the way, there is absolutely no biblical argument against male headship in the home. If there is male headship in the home, then, uh, then it seems crazy to say there can also be male headship in the church. And there's a stronger argument than this, okay? But I just want to kind of lay, lay the foundation. So you've got male headship in the home, male headship in the church. Now, now let me just kind of tell you a story of how... This can get wacky when it doesn't work out this way. I was talking to a friend of mine who, and he was telling about a friend in, in a church uh, in Dallas where um, uh, this, this church is growing like crazy and uh, the church is probably what we would describe as a little more liberal. Um, they have, uh, the, 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 there is a husband who is uh, on staff and is one of the teaching pastors of the church and is not an elder. His wife is an elder. Okay? Now, this church needs to move. Uh, They're blowing and going, and they've got to go and, uh, and figure out something to accommodate the people that are showing up at their door, all right? So uh, the wife uh, believes it is a fantastic idea for the church to pick up and move and go to another location, okay? They've got land they've picked out, and the wife is all in favor of that, okay, the husband thinks it would be an absolutely catastrophic error for the church to do that. Now, I can't even comprehend how that works itself out. You say, well, you know what? They'll just make church, church, and home, home. Impossible. That's, that's, that's absurd. Not a chance you'll be able to do that. And it would almost be laughable to be a fly on the wall and watch how those two want to battle that one out. How's that going to work? Okay, so you've got headship in the home, and a different headship in the church, okay? So, so uh, you can come up with some bizarre uh, results. Now, number three, 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty four to 36. And this is talking about the teaching roles of women, okay? Um, and, uh, or, or speaking, I should say. Um, there are some complementarians who would disagree with me on this, and this is where I'd be kind of a revised complementarian. That's okay. In this text, Paul says this. He says, I don't permit a woman to speak in church, Hey, I'm not making this stuff up. That's scripture, right? Okay. Now, what in the world does that mean? I do not permit a woman to speak in the church. Rather, he says, you know what? If they need to learn something, let them go home and learn from their husbands. That's essentially what he says. Now, this text has been has been used to whip women down through the centuries, okay? They can't talk, they can't do anything, but this prohibition on women speaking cannot be absolute in the church. It cannot be, button your lips, because three chapters earlier in chapter 11, Paul says both men and women can prophesy in the church. So how do we get that? We have prophecy, and then we have we've got this idea of of, of no speaking. Well, here's what's happening contextually in First Corinthians: you have a church in absolute disarray. Okay, it is chaos. And there are disagreements that are happening. And, 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 and I mean, there are things happening in the church service. We're not just talking about in the back halls. Things are happening in this church service and it has gone wild. Okay, So Paul is saying in chapter 14, you look at it, chapter 14 is about orderly worship in the church. How to maintain order in a service. Okay, So he says there's got to be order and that's the context. So what's he saying? He's saying, women, okay, uh, what, what you, here, here's what you can't do. Uh, when, when there is something happening in service, don't stand up and publicly dishonor your husband by disagreeing with him. Rather, wait until you get home to ask. This is not saying, women, you can never teach in the church. Shut your mouth, put on a prayer shawl, get over it, and ask your man when you get home. That is not what this scripture is saying. Okay? So, um, the problem is that if Paul meant no teaching, he normally uses a completely different word. He says no speaking, okay? And, he, and, and, and the word for teach is a completely different word in the Greek that Paul uses uniformly. I can't think of a time when he doesn't use that. Um, and so, so uh, uh, he says, look, we've got to keep peace. We've got to bring order to this service. And so, we're going to do that by ladies Stop doing what you're doing and stop standing up and calling out your husband in front of everybody. Now, what, what might this look like? Okay, Michelle, there's a lot of times when Michelle has a question about what I've preached. Okay? She'll ask me a question. What did you mean there? There are times when Michelle will say uh, things like, well, I hear what you were saying, but the way you said it seemed kind of harsh or whatever. Okay? Um, and so she's going to disagree with me. She's going to say some things. Now, um, what Paul is saying is that, look, there is a right way for Michelle to handle that, and there's a wrong way, okay? The, 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 the wrong way would dishonor her head. That's what's talking about in, in chapter 14. Um, and, and, and that would be to stand up and say, hey, dummy, you know, what are you talking about? Or, you know, hey, whoa, Chris, Chris, Chris. I don't agree with that. I think what you meant to say is that'd be dishonoring. He says, don't do that. Because uh, that was happening, so so, there, uh, so the right way would be to say, "Hey, we're on our way home, honey. Let me ask you something." And she asked me the question, and we answered. Okay, so so there's there. That's what Paul is getting after, bringing order in the church. Okay, First Timothy two, verses eleven to fifteen. The word authority is key here. Okay, what what is authority? Do not ha- allow a woman to have authority over a man. Uh, Some will argue that 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 means, therefore, that women can never teach in front of men. Now, the problem is that women can stand in front of children and teach. They can stand in front of youth and teach. Um, And so, but at some point, we make this decision, I'm not sure how, uh, no more. You know, there's the cutting off age. And there's no indication of that in scripture. When does that date cut off? Is it? 19, 17, 13, when, when do they have to stop not teaching men? And so uh, that, that's a question that some complementarians, uh, uh, they, they can't answer. So the position that I think is most biblical is that, listen, a woman can teach in front of men as long as she is under the covering of male leadership. Now, why would I say that? Because there is ample evidence biblically that women were teachers and were under the headship of a man. Miriam, they crossed the Red Sea. Okay? I don't think we can just say she sang quietly to herself. Her singing and her praise to God were meant to be an instruction on the goodness and the grace of the Lord in delivering them from the Egyptians, and that was heard by men, and that was heard by women. But no one will argue that Miriam was out from under the headship of Moses. In fact, when Miriam does that, when Miriam decides, you're not in charge, Moses, I can be in charge, God does what? strikes her with leprosy and says, uh-uh, and does the same thing to Aaron. Okay, he says, guys, that's not going to happen. And he puts Miriam out of the camp. Okay, so... um you see it in Priscilla and Aquila. They both teach Apollos. Um, and, 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 and you know, So there's evidence in the Bible of women uh, teaching men as long as they're under the headship of a man. Now, Paul draws a parallel between the headship of Christ in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. He draws a parallel between the headship of Christ over the church and the headship of a man over his wife. That is the analogy that Paul uses. So, how does the church submit to Christ? Fear and trembling? Like, don't, don't beat me, Christ? No. Uh, it, 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 the church submits gladly to Christ. In fact, in that submission is our joy. Our greatest joy is in submitting to Christ. Okay? So, but more importantly, how does Christ love the church? He lays down his life. And that is not a silver bullet in the head, boom, Christ is gone. That's how you lay down your life. This is flesh ripped from bone. This is hair torn out of, 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 of the beard. This is punch, slap, spit upon. This is scourge. This is beaten. This is, this is bleeding to death. Cruelly. Okay. That's how a man loves his wife. So, so this nonsense... And I would say the straw men that that a that that uh, many of the feminists want to throw up and say this is an excuse to abuse women is absolute. It's insulting. It's not an excuse to abuse women. If anybody has the higher calling, it's the man to love his wife. Okay, First Peter two seven says in a sense that, that, that while a man and a woman are totally equal, in essence, the man bears a particular God-sanctioned responsibility to care for and lead his wife. Okay? To care for and lead, lead his wife. Now, one final thing on that one, and that is the, the Trinitarian analogy. Okay, that's number seven for you. Okay, I've said it over and over that the man and woman are equal in essence, but they're differing in the roles they play. And if you're a, if you're a fan of theology like I am, or uh, you know that that is not a unique statement to husbands and wives, we say that about God. That, that's the way we talk about God. Okay, we say things like, um, uh, and we call this a Trinitarian analogy. Uh, what do we believe? We believe that the Trinity is this. Uh, we believe that God eternally exists, uh, is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One, yet three. Okay? We believe all are God. They are, in essence, equal. They are God. There is not one of the members of the Trinity that is not God, or partially God, or anything like that. Fully God. Okay. But there's a distinction in the role that they play. And, and they willingly subordinate themselves to the other. Willingly. So, um, you see this illustrated most dramatically and powerfully in how Christ subjects Himself to the Father. He obeys His Father. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Okay? Um, Christ is God, and yet He is in willing submission to the Father. The Spirit submits to Christ and God. Okay, the, the, Jesus says, I'm going to send my spirit. The spirit reminds the disciples of Christ's teaching. Um, the, the spirit's role is not to bring attention to himself, but to bring attention to Christ. So there's this willing submission. So is Christ God? Yes, to say otherwise would be heresy. Um, and and you, can't, you can't come to a different conclusion in, in reading the Gospels. So is he God? Yes. Is Christ in submission? To the father yes willingly lovingly not begrudgingly okay it's not you know only see what the father tells me to do you know father glorify your name in me i mean it's nothing like this. It's like god man i want that i want you to be glorified i, I want to do your will i want to be obey you so so what we're showing is, so far is this that the bible teaches there is a role distinction between men and women in the home, and in the church. Okay, and you can look up all those passages and, and check me out on that. Okay, now let's move to D, and I'll go until 8:30, uh, and then we'll break and we'll see how far we get here. Okay. Now, despite the fact that sin has produced in women an illegitimate desire to usurp the rightful authority that God gave to man, and despite the fact that sin has produced in man an illegitimate, l- illegitimate desire to therefore rule cruelly over his uh, wife, uh, God has worked through the history of Israel and the church uh, to establish male headship as the consistent and approved pattern for religious and home life. Okay, so let's look at these. Number one, male leadership in Israel. Okay, what do we see from the garden? on, God has consistently called out men to lead his people, to be responsible for the primary religious leadership, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, the male priestly order, the prophets, male, 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 male. Now, I'm going to get to your objections because I know what one of them is already, but I would say this. It is the exception, and I mean the rare exception in the direst of circumstances when a woman is called to fulfill anything close to one of those roles. Okay, and we'll show you that. Number two, male leadership with Christ. Jesus was not adverse to challenging customs. So you've got just the background here. Listen, if we know anything about Jesus, he honored women in a way they were never honored before bringing them in uh, close to him. So he was not adverse to challenging customs and traditions when they ran counter, contrary to the kingdom of God. In fact, uh, Jesus often, uh, that's the thing that he attacked, was the humanly fabricated uh, conditions that were put on people. So what we learn is that Christ doesn't conform to culture when that culture doesn't conform to the kingdom. Okay? When it runs counter to the kingdom, Christ, uh, Christ will confront it. It's what got him killed. And so, for example, Jesus takes women with him on his travels and they're an important part of his ministry. But there is not one instance in all of Scripture, in all of the New Testament, in any of the Gospels, of Jesus choosing a woman to be one of his 12 disciples. Not one. Okay? Could he have done that? Of course he could have. Was there opportunity to do that? Yes, there was. Um, but he did not. Was he constrained by the culture of his day because somehow that would have been countercultural? Never. Never. So apparently, for Jesus, there was nothing repugnant, nothing ugly, nothing inherently evil uh, or unbiblical about choosing male leadership to be the foundation of the church. Okay? Number three, male leadership in the church. The New Testament makes clear that women are restricted from certain places of leadership in the churches, namely what are called elders, overseers, bishops, and if I need to explain those terms to you, I can do that. I, I, I will do that if you need me to do that. But these are terms that are used interchangeably, and I can show you how they're used interchangeably by Paul and Timothy and, and, uh, and Titus and other places. But... Um, those are the offices that are restricted to men. And we've, we've uh, already pointed out some of the verses that, that talk about these. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16 talk about this. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 36. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 consistently require that the church's ultimate human spiritual leadership be gender specific, not based on ability, but based on God's sovereign design. Based on what he has put into order. Now, please hear this. This is not about ability. Absolutely not about ability. Um, This is about God's designation of the way things are supposed to be in the home and in the church. I will tell you, and I say this without any shame, Michelle is way smarter than I am. I'm not being, I'm not being, this is not false humility she is way smarter. She can read faster than I can. She can retain information better than I can. She remembers things way better than I ever will. Um, she has an emotional IQ that is off the charts and can relate to people in ways that I, I can only dream of relating. Okay? She, is, she is far, far smarter. Uh, she's tougher than me. I mean, I double over with gas pain. She can, she can you know whatever, put a 7-inch tube in her back and she's all right. She doesn't even wince. Okay, I, I, I'm not like that. I'd be balling my head off. This is not about IQ or talent or skills or ability. It's about what God has designed, whether we like it or not. Okay, so how would this kind of home uh, situation, how would it play out? Submission play out in a home where the wife is so much more intelligent than the husband. Okay, uh, what what would that look like? I think it would look like her giftedness. Being in submission to the initiation of her husband. Now now let me explain that. Let's suppose I can't read. Um, But Michelle can. Now, it is not sinful or a lack of submission for Michelle to read the Bible to our kids. Okay? Um, But biblically, I believe with all my heart that it needs to be me that says we need to be reading We need to be praying and to lead my family spiritually. Okay? That's my role in the home. And many women hear this and say, but wait a second. My husband won't get off their lazy, you know, rear end and and lead me and the kids. So do I stay away from church? Do I not read my Bible? Absolutely not. Because your first allegiance, hear me, your first allegiance is to Christ. And God never says that a woman must disobey Christ to honor and submit to her husband. Ever, ever, ever. Okay? And we're going to see that in 1 Peter. This is not about ability. Feminists often hear male liter- leadership and say, wait a minute, are you saying I can't do that? No, we're not saying you can't do that. That isn't the issue. It's not an issue of what you can do. I'm looking at Bernice, way more talented than I am, in dozens of things, can spin a hundred plates in the air when I can spin two. This is not the issue. Okay? Um, uh the issue is not, can you? The issue is, should you, biblically? What does the Bible say? And here again, we have to let the Bible tell us what is acceptable and not acceptable against the culture and against our experience or lack thereof. So, so listen... You could be a woman who speaks 40 languages, has been a U.S. Senator, you're a CEO of your own Fortune 500 company, uh, you're 142 years old with life experience that's better than 10 men, um, and you're married to a babbling moron who can't read or write. Okay? Worst case scenario, right? And that doesn't lessen by one millimeter what I said. Because the Bible, you're an amazing woman. But, but the Bible says that these are the confines of the role that you are called to fill and he is called to fill. And it doesn't change the role.